0: This is George Lynch of the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. If you're looking for a podcast that's all about the facts and and experience, this is the place, guys. This episode, we named this episode Mature Whitetail Bucks Are Aliens. And uh, before I get started in talking about Mature Whitetail Bucks, one thing we do want to make clear to the audience out there that your goals need to be realistic. We need it's about where you're at, where you live. Um, if you're not blessed to be in Iowa, Kansas, or Ohio, you know if you're one of those guys in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and a lot of parts of Michigan areas that uh, there's not big bucks um, historically taken then you, you basically, what I used to tell myself when I lived in Michigan, you got to compare yourself to those around in your area. Again, I made this statement before. If you live in a heavy, hunted, uh, pressured area of whitetails, then, you know, the guy who goes out there and, and legally and morally, he shoots every year a two-and-a-half-year-old buck with his bow. He's a good hunter. He's done. you got to dot your I's, cross your T's to, just to, to shoot that class. And that might be the mature buck that's in your area just for the fact that They don't get time to live. So once you make those goals realistic and understand, like I said, compared to your area, then uh, you could kind of judge and see how to better yourself. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. It's about taking our experience and and taking the time that we put in, the observation of over the years of watching bucks and trophy bucks, um, being able to hunt states and be able to live in a a trophy producing state, um, being able to pass up immature deer to get to the mature deer. You can't pick the, the fruit before it's ripe. But being able to do that, you know, I get to witness a lot of bucks uh, uh, not mature. Some are mature that I just passed up because I had another mature buck on my line. But being able to pass those bucks up, you know, it, you learn to uh, to observe and educate yourself on big buck behavior. And that's why we like, or why I like to call them an alien, because They don't react like a normal deer. They're not a normal human being. They are from a different world. They're from a different planet. And um, there is a fact that that 10% of your trophy hunters kill 90% of your trophy deer. So that leaves 90% of the people out there who've gone through and and probably don't know what a trophy whitetail is, hasn't seen a trophy whitetail, and that's why we kind of use it with the aliens. Probably, t- if you if you did a census on the alien perspective in America, probably 10% would tell you that they had the experience of dealing with the third kind. Uh, either they saw in a UFO, or they had some kind of encounter. Leaves 90%, if you asked a question, they would probably say, well, I don't know, or it'd be cool if there was aliens. Probably Probably a small fraction would probably say absolutely not so that is the alien that's out in the woods where we live I mean if you talk to a lot of the hunters out there you say hey man and it helps a bunch today with trophy cameras or trail cams that we have today but if you ask a lot of the hunters out there they don't even know if the big buck exists in their woods so again we have to be realistic I like to break the season up and basically in the three parts, and and it actually could be four parts. Let's so going to break it up into four parts because I don't want to uh, put the rut as one whole thing. I like to break the rut up into a pre-rut, into a, a regular rut. And so what you got basically in this whole season in, in the deer hunting, you have early... You have pre-rut, rut, and then I call the late season. Now some guys will get to you and say, "Well, there's a post-rut too." Yeah, there's a post-rut, but people don't realize that post-rut is usually the mature. mature it's the few um, whitetail does that, when they came into estrus in the peak rut, didn't get bred or didn't take, and then they go. I think it's another 28 days in their cycle. They'll hit that that cycle again of coming into estrus. Usually, historically in the Midwest, it runs around Christmas. It could be, but usually it's a, only a two to three day, and then it's shut right up. But it, it can be a good time. But I just, like I said, majority, I like to take the early season, pre rut, rut, and late season. And there's so much that goes into each part of these seasons that I could almost make a podcast on each part of the season. What we're going to do is kind of give you a quick synopsis of each season. We'll break it down later, and like I said, another podcast, but in the early season, um, I like to talk about, you know, hopefully we've done our scouting, and again, if you're doing early season hunting, or you're doing the early uh, summer scouting, usually in the summer, and you're doing, I hope that you're doing it long range, and the reason why long range scouting is the key is that I'm trying to keep my scent and everywhere, everything out of that hunting area to let the, a deer know that I am not there chasing him. Um, if you do happen to do your scouting or you're one of those guys who put your stand up in three or four days before the season comes and you know whatever reason it is, make sure that when I approach and I'm scouting in the woods, you understand now we've had uh, squirrel hunters, you might have guys cutting wood, there's always gonna be some type of human activity But one thing that whitetails do catch on quick, and especially the ones who start getting older and older, they relate to, they know the scent of man, but they know the strength of that scent, but they know if they're being hounded. It's the the predatorial um, training of, of coyotes or man, whatever. What I'm trying to say is when I'm walking into a woods and I see my deer runs, I purposely make sure that I do not step onto the runs if I follow a run, I might go four or five yards uh, down from the run, parallel with it, but I don't parallel too much. I'll crisscross. Animals have this sense, and and I have, we, my wife and I have horses, and their alertness and awareness to pred- predation is 24-7. I mean, you understand when they're out there, they know that hey, we're the animals that are being chased, we're the animals that are, are going to be eaten. They have that predatorial sense of that they know that there's predators out there. And when you start hounding and walk in that deer run, the deer will pick up real quick that there is a predator on my tail. It throws a red flag up, but the crisscross and everything, the animals will, I'm telling you, by doing this and, and not putting pressure on those deer, if I'm going to be in the woods, it's gonna be in that midday or the time before the rain. You know, I love to put a tree stand up either in the right during the light rain or if I can plant it just before a rain. And the reason why is because once I go in there, my scent is washed completely away, my approach into the woods washed completely away, and what that does is that takes about five days without the rain and you start walking in the woods and you touch the trees and you're touching branches and cutting. It's going to take about five to six days through regular weather for your scent to start dissipating and eliminating. Now, there is, like I said, again, there, you know, that's why I believe like the, the scent, uh, the spray or the scent suits, the scent lock, the, 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 the scent shield or whatever we used to use, the carbon suits. My analogy of using that over the years—I don't ever believe that there's anything that's 100% proved uh, eliminating man's scent, because God, this thing right here, God has made that that nose so acute and so unbelievably strong that I don't think man can create anything that can hide completely hide what I say of the human scent. But what it can do. And this is what I noticed, is, and it isn't just mature bucks that will teach you, mature the mature doe. And if you talk a lot of the trophy hunters who've passed up a lot of deer, so you see a lot of deer and you, you experience these deer walking by, probably the, one of the toughest deer uh, to fool and to, to camouflage or to, to set your ambush is a mature white-tailed doe. You take a doe that reaches the, to her four and a half to five and a half and older, uh, she is tough because you know why? She doesn't had to. She just didn't care for herself and had to worry about protecting herself, like this guy here does. You know, he's all about himself she's had to raise one to two maybe three offsprings you know during the year and she's just not caring for herself she's teaching she is responsible for the safety of the other deer so if you happen to hunt a food source if you in a state that can bait or if you're hunting a good white white oak acorn and as she comes in you always notice that the the fawns are the first ones who will come in and she'll stand back. And as they're feeding and going to town, she is licking her nose, which licking the nose, if you watch the bucks do that, it wetens the nose and makes the scent stick better. You know, if you ever had, uh, I've had bird dogs, and we've hunted my whole lives, hunting either waterfowl or upland game. You notice our bird dogs, if you have just a little bit of wet grass, that's actually the best time early mornings because that dew's out there and that scent will cling and hold on to that vegetation so much. And then better than if you were hunting if in a dry season or later in the day when you haven't had rain, that dry brush and everything, you watch the chaff, that poor bird dog, he's working back and forth. His nose would be all scratched because he, it, everything is so dry that the scent doesn't hold. So that's the reason why you see deer licking their nose constantly. It's giving them a stronger uh, of, of holding that scent then taking it into the palate, nasal palate. But that big doe, she'll sit back and then she'll study everything. And man, if there's one thing that you've done in your skyline or whatever like that, boom, she has picked that right out. So learning again by letting some of these sub, the deer go through and, and educating yourself and watching these deer, you can learn a lot. So that's why I'm saying when I go into the woods, you got to understand, um, now you might have a summer but there's no human contact, so these deer get the, they get comfortable, and they're in their bachelor groups. They're still in their summer grazing, uh, whatever they're feeding on. But all of a sudden, you know, you take everybody. Oh man, October first is coming up. Uh, season's going to be here. I haven't a chance to get out there and scout. Next thing you know, the woods is starting to erupt in October. With all this scent, state land, you got people from all over. That's why a lot of your trophy hunters who hunt state land, they're trying to use river. They're using some type of water reservoir to come in back door to be able to get in and get out without leaving the scent presence or the visual presence of man into the whitetail bedroom, living room, however you want to call it. And I used to tell guys in in seminars that when we got talking about whitetails, if you don't think, you know, how do you how do you scout your area? Um, do you walk the whole area? Do, you know, do you walk deer runs and stuff? You know, are you very cautious? Are you very aware and thinking about your footsteps, your footprints, and where you everywhere I touch and everywhere my foot goes, that's leaving an imprint, my scent, my signature right there. And oh no, I, I think I walk pretty careful, and I'm telling you, what, I am not so about my entrance and exit and where I step and what I touch even uh, when I'm in the whitetail woods. And the best scenario I can tell you, and it it happened to me when uh, my daughter um, I had Brooke, Brooke was, she had to be maybe eight years old, 10 years old and she wanted to go with daddy out and it was December and I was going to go out and and, uh, check one of my stands and just to take her. And you know, I carried her in, but when I got to the stand and say, Hey, honey, stay right there. I'm going to go up, move my stand. I'm going to do this. And I'll never forget the next night sitting in my stand. A little smile came to my face, but it, it made me aware because of the snow. I'm looking around and I see these little footprints all over the place you know, and, and honey, did you stay still yet? Daddy, I didn't move. Then all of a sudden I look in the snow, it gave away. What I'm trying to say is we walk more than what we think. So be very observant, be very uh, conscious of, you know, where we place our feet and how we go in and get out. Um, So when I get to that early season, now we've done our stands. Like I said, hopefully you got your, you've had your stands up for months. You've done your long range scouting. Um, When I go in, and, and if I'm going to, if I'm going to, since I've been out in Iowa here and I've been more conscious of, of hunting a trophy whitetail, I'm very paranoid about putting any pressure. If I have a big buck spotted, I don't move in and hunt him till I feel that the first time I go in, I'm going to kill him. It's not, a, oh, I'm just going to go and hope I see something. Every time I go on my stand, tonight's the night I'm going to kill him. I've done my homework, the wind is right, I'm not taking a chance, I don't believe in luck. I, I believe you make your luck, I believe you hunt smart. There's sometimes there might be a little luck of getting that right, perfect shot, but anytime I get myself within 20 yards of a mature whitetail, whether I get the shot in him or not, I feel I still won. I got within 20 yards of a mature whitetail because of the type of equipment. You'll see it here, I mean, I've hunted with compounds, and uh, but my love, of hunting and archery, I, I love a stick and string, I love hunting with a recurve. So I have to be very close uh, to get my lethal shot on that deer, doesn't always that happen. Now, if I had a gun, absolutely could have put him down. And I'm not one of those guys saying, hey, well, I wish I had a gun. You know what? That was part of the hunt, it was part of the experience. I had him at 20 yards, man, that was cool. So anyway, what I'm saying in the early season with I'm doing my scouting, and again, I am a huge trail gamer trail camera guy and that's another podcast to get in talking about trail cameras but the cool thing it's very simple in a nutshell about a trail camera a trail camera will let you know what's there and the cool thing about that is it's pretty it's it's easier to pass up a pretty good buck when you know something like this is in your area you know, if you got a 170-inch deer that you know is living there, it's pretty. It's more easier for me to pass up a 150-inch deer, which in the day I didn't have a trail camera. And if I would never laid an eyes on a 170-inch deer, that 150-inch deer would have been been in trouble. Now, there's nothing wrong if you want to shoot a 150-inch deer, but uh, if I know I got a 170-class that's in my area, he's and he's huntable that's the guy I'm going for. And it's one of those, you swing for the fence, you get the fit, you hit the home run or you strike out. That's just the way. But, but you know what? You gave a chance at bat. That's how I look at it. So when I look at the early season, you know, so you, you got that change. I, I believe that the first three days are very critical. And that first three days, if you, like I said, stayed away, done the long range scouting, um, your stand's been up plenty of time. But when I get in there, that first time in the stand, and so many trophy hunters will tell you, you know, usually your first time in is your best time. Any other time after that, your your odds and success go down and go down. Well, that's because you're putting more pressure. You're you're putting more your presence of your scent, your body. Now you probably jump deer going in. You probably jump deer coming out. The presence of man that all summer long, spring and summer, there's never been a man in here. Now you've, you start to make that presence and a mature whitetail, that alien out there, he's known that once this starts happening, means that hunting season's on and I'm going to go and hold low. That's why I believe that when I'm hunting, whether it's early, what season it is, I don't like to hunt a certain family group of deer more than two days in a row. After two days, I'll break and I believe that, you know, go to hunt another family group, whether it's two to three, 10 miles away. I'm trying to hunt separate family groups, not more than two, you know, not more than two days, not three days, because I don't want them to feel that they're being hunted. And also, if you do your homework, you'll find that a lot of these deer, especially in the farm country, that There's food source all over now. If you hunt the northern country, northern Minnesota, northern Michigan, you might see that this isn't quite as much uh, a change in the family groups because once those deer are there in that area in these big woodlots, it's because of the food whether it's acorns, whether whatever it is out there, it's cuttings, you know, the the forestry's done cuttings. Those deer pretty much stay in that area, they'll have their different bedding areas around that core feeding area and that's based on the wind, but pretty much that core area is kept in there because of the food. In farm country, because we have crop fields all over, those deer, I believe every three days move in a cycle. And then another group might move them, but they move around in that in a three to four day cycle. So again, I if I if I get one opportunity of those deer and I pass them up and then get into that second day. If I move out of there and I haven't, you know, jumped any going in, jumped going in, any going out, those deer have a chance of being more calm. They haven't had the continual pressure of man in on them. And again, whitetails do what white tails are supposed to do undisturbed. Whitetails become fanatics and become the most adaptable, adaptive animal in, in history. If, if you talk to a lot of hunters who've hunt different game, will tell you that the white-tailed deer is probably the most adaptive animal in the continent you know, or in the world. I mean, these animals, big bucks, have learned to live right behind farmers' bonds, ponds. Uh, thickets little areas that you might drive by overpasses and areas that if you have an area that has a lot of uh, population not a lot of woodlots I've uh, I've seen deer that use uh, on the overpasses going under overpasses and traveling back and forth going under the roads to travel from one one from a bedding area to a feeding area and back um, with cars driving over so that's about as adaptable as you can get but in that three days there Those deer are still, a lot of times, they're still in that summer pattern. They are um, in bachelor groups, means that you'll still, a mature whitetail definitely can be hanging with it. You know, a yearling buck, a, a two year old, a three year old, he could be hanging with them. And usually about those, he'll be behind them usually and still be back in the group. But that's a good time. And what they're doing, they're basically, they have their bedding area and they're going to food source. Their buddies are still hanging on. The testosterone levels hasn't started raising to where they're starting hitting the scrapes or you know they're wanting to rub and they're thinking about breeding. And then the competition gets a little serious. And then they start this breaking away, separating up and and start searching for that receptive doe. So on the first three days, you got that chance in, in hunting the food source. My time that and it's basically religiously for me. The only way it would change it if I knew that I had facts that this whitetail buck was going to be in a position where I could get in in the morning and get in a stand without alerting deer and hunt him and kill him in the morning. I would do it, but what I'm—that's not too often the case. And in, like I said, in early season, you're hunting a food source. The chance and, and the danger of going in on that food source an hour before daylight, two hours before daylight, there's deer out there in that feed, that food source and they're eating. Whether it's your food plot, turnips, you know, whatever, corn, uh, soybean field, whatever it is, that food source, those deer, a lot of times they're in there as you're going in. So what are you doing? <laughs> You're bumping deer as you're going through, you're being skyline. I think if you're gonna do something like that, you're better off to go in at pink light and then scout and and, uh, still hunt your way into your stand. Uh, So then I can see if there's any deer, if they're not there, then I can move again. I look again, don't see anything. I can move up here, up to my stand. And then hopefully that they might be crossing and catching one heading back to bedding. But that's why I choose more in the early season that first week, at least, you know, the first three days, I hunt nothing but evenings. And whether it's evening, whether I'm hunting, or excuse me, whether I'm hunting early season, or I'm hunting the, the pre-rut, the rut, or, or late season, anytime I'm hunting in the afternoon, I really like to go, you know, the majority of the guys, they hunt two hours before dark, or they'll hunt... First thing they'll hunt, they'll get in their stand an hour before daylight, and then they spend the, the customary two hours in their stand. They get out, and every day it's the same time you know, 10 30, 11 o'clock, walking across, walking across. And trust me, the deer they scout and, and they predict they, they get to uh pattern you the way you pattern them. So, if I'm going to go in in the afternoon again, we're over a food source, there's a good chance that you might get some of those does or the younger does or a younger buck that they come out there, you know, it could be a 3 o'clock, you know, and if I go in at 4, I'm bumping those deer. And Say it's getting dark at at 6.30. Well, if you go in at 4 and you bump those deer, those deer are going to go through there, and that buck is probably going to be about 100 yards back in there, and he's bedded down. And then when those deer go running by him, it lurched to him, and, of course, he's going to look. He knows the food source. He, He knows exactly where those deer came from. He's gonna watch those deer as they go by. It's gonna take him a little time because he's gonna be on pins and needles. It's gonna be full alert. These ears are gonna be moving back and forth. He's gonna, usually a lot of times, if they're just over a knoll or a hill, he's laying where the wind is behind him coming over the knoll and using his eyesight to see in front of him what's approaching. So if I choose to go in early, say if it's, you know, instead of going in at four, I choose to go in at 12:30 or 1:30, 1 o'clock. Those deer, you push, and they as they go through there again. That's not the normal time as is going through, but what it does, it gives that deer enough time that he relaxes and he forgets about the deer that ran past him, he might have forgot what, in, in fact, these deer probably forgot, forgotten, and they will come back before him, but walk past him, and then back to the field, and if you're set up before they come back to the field, and never come back, they don't snort, they don't win, this old boy's going to get up normal like he always does, and he's going to head right out to that field, so choosing again if you're going to do your afternoon hunts try to get in instead of the regular pattern of you're going in two hours before dark and you're hunting two hours in the afternoon, try to stretch that to a four hour hunt and give yourself plenty of time and getting into that to your spot. So when you do happen to jump deer in that food source, they got plenty of time to let that they calm and they will, will return and come back because you're on the food source. Um, when you talk about the next thing, maybe you're hunting what I call the pre-rut, and if you look at the whole rut picture, you have the rut, and everybody oh man, I want to get in on the rut. The rut's the best time to hunt, and I have to disagree on that. Um, mature whitetails especially, um, if you're hunting immature whitetail, and especially on the insubordinate bucks, if you got does coming in, if you notice in, in that pre-rut, she's a little nervous but she is still thinking about feeding still thinking about watching her fawns and you know the young buck comes in and he might want to you know uh, rot her a little bit he might stick his nose she real quick will shut that down on him and he gets back and oh shugs his shoulder but she's more relaxed now a lot of the guys you know if if you're not a trophy hunter i mean the rut or pre-rut anytime is a good time and you could shoot you know an immature deer they just because they're not doing the chasing and the breeding in an area where you have mature whitetails. That pre rut. Is a great time. That's usually when you start seeing the scrapes all over opening up. You'll start seeing rub the big rub start to show. This is a time, and again, this is a podcast in itself talking about mock scrapes. I'm a huge mock scrape guy, and I got it down to a science. And like I said, that's a podcast in itself. We're gonna uh, the time of year and what we do, and it's all science, guys, and proven. It's it makes sense. Because it's the, it's the realistic way. It's how, you know, it's real communication for the deer. We're not using foreign scent, but, you know, the process is a natural way of doing it. But this is a time that your mock scrapes that you're really through, really gonna start utilizing them and working them hard. Um, this is a time to really hunt over those mock scrapes. And the biggest thing when I tell guys, find the family groups of does and start hunting the does. Don't worry about you know. Well, you know, I'm gonna, I need to hunt this little. You know, I've always heard that you hunt this main run, and 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 if you look over, you'll find the faint run, and that's the a, a chance where that's usually the run that i will hunt and, and and hunting that trophy buck. And I'm telling you what, I hunt, I hunt the runs unless, like I said, I get into a bottleneck area, and. The main run, you know, if it's actually more of an open area. You know, you, you might try to look for the fate runs that crisscross, but more than the important than that, try to find some active scrapes, find, find and hunt those runs that run to those scrapes from point A to point B, point A, point, point B. I was blessed years ago. I, I was tutored by a man named Roger Rothar, who today is considered the best bow hunting whitetail expert that ever lived. And Roger took me under his thumb years ago. He was the guy who got me into shooting traditional archery. And Roger's knowledge of uh, mature whitetails was unbelievable. And he was the first guy that came up with scrape classifications. You had, and what he did, he broke that down to uh, he had your uh, boundary scrapes, you had secondary scrapes, and then he had called what he called primary scrapes. And the boundary scrapes, a lot of you young guys will go out there, and those are the scrapes that you see at the edge of the field that the deer tear up. A lot of guys will see that and they'll throw their stand up. The problem with a boundary, or a boundary scrape, it's a good place to put a camera. And if you're, you know, early October or September, wanting to put a camera, it's a good place to put a boundary, uh, your your uh, camera up on an early boundary scrape because I guarantee you within two weeks or so. The biggest deer that's in that area is probably going to pass through that boundary scrape. But I can guarantee it's going to be a nighttime photo. Um, your younger, more immature deer will hit those boundary scrapes. It's a, more of a scent check. Your mature whitetails, they're going to go and what you'll have is what they call the primary scrapes. Now, secondary scrape is, is good too, but it could be that scrape that, would be, that, that you find that in the wood scrape line where that, that buck has worked and he's got a scrape line. And that scrape line, a lot of times, is done or it's made because of these overhanging branches. You, if you don't have overhanging branches, you're not going to have a scrape. That is the scent communication for the deer. Now, that's your secondary scrape. and a lot of guys, there's nothing wrong with that. They can set up from one scrape you know, and hunt between two scrapes and put a stand up. The scrape that is real hot and you're in that woods is called the primary scrape. And that usually will be your big scrape. Sometimes it'll be opened up to the size of your car hood. But what you'll have, the difference between that and a secondary scrape or a boundary scrape is that you'll have multiple trails that come in. It looks like the old saying, it looks like a wagon wheel. Here's a scrape and here's the spokes. Looks like a wagon wheel that's it's coming into that scrape. That's your hot scrape. And then it isn't just one buck. You can kill you might kill a couple good bucks off that same scrape. And another thing, mature bucks aren't the only ones that are using these primary scapes. Mature does are as well. That is how this works. That mature doe goes into that scrape of course. That buck, he's, he's pawing it and he's putting his scent down his hocks and he's letting that doe know, you know, he, basically the health of that buck the age structure of that buck, and pretty much she's going to know when she smells his urine in there down his hocks that this is the big guy, that he is mature, this is my breeding stock. What a lot of times she'll do is she'll urinate into that scrap, or excuse me, that scrape, that buck can come through, and a lot of times these big mature whitetails, they actually don't have to be in the scrape. What they'll do is downwind the scrape first, and then scent check that scrape, and they can tell if the doe is urinated in that scrape. He'll come up into that. You'll see that a lot of guys, like again, if, you, if you're if you passing up mature deer and start studying this, you'll see this. They'll stick their nose in and actually right into that dirt of that scrape and then he'll stick up and he'll he'll stick his tongue and his lip out and it's called the fleeman where he'll suck that nasal that air and that that liquid up into his nasal cavity and he can tell whether that doe you know the age structure of that doe he can tell the health of that doe and he can tell if she's ready to breed all through god's communication with animals on scent and urine so in that pre-rut, this is the time that you these scrapes will open up. This is the time that you got a great chance that that big, mature whitetail can walk up to that scrape. But when I said walk and, and give you that opportunity of that open shot. Now, the problem of getting with the rut, the rut is these deer are starting to chase the does. The does are nervous. The does, they're paranoid. And I if you sit there, you hear... Here she comes over, and she comes over the hill, and she's sitting there breathing hard. And then all of a sudden, right behind her, here comes this guy, tongue hanging down to here. And, he, bah, 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 bah. and he's chasing her all in that bottom, and she is relentless. She's not ready to breathe. He, she still has her young one with her. And um, that's another thing we'll get into, how to tell when that buck's got the doe. And this, When this happens, when you start seeing that fawn, because she's with that fawn all year, when you see what he'll do, when she knows that she's close within the next two, three days to start breeding, he runs that little guy right out of there. And that, whether it's a doe fawn or a buck fawn, when that fawn leaves, it doesn't go far, but it won't come in, because every time he comes back to his mama, and this is the first time he's been separated from his mother. And the sad thing about this, and it's nature's way. There's nothing you can do about it. This is the time that that poor little guy is susceptible to coyote or some type of predator taking taking him down because this is the first time that he's been away from his mother. This is, and a button buck is probably the most curious, inquisitive of all whitetails. He'll stick his nose where it shouldn't be. And, you know, he'll he doesn't really know the danger of predation really that much because mom has always taken care of that. She just tells him blows when it's time to go. Well, this is the first time that, you know, she's had that, that big buck has not her, but the big buck has pushed him away because he wants her nothing but concentrating on him and doing what nature is intended. Now that'll go on. And like I said, the, the bad thing about that rut and it's happened to me so many times, and is that you? It's hard to get that good shot at that big buck because he's moving back and forth, and that doe's under. I mean, I I can give you two stories of um, a mature whitetail. I had a whitetail that we called Hercules, and he was he he showed up on the camera. Uh, I think it was the first week of November. He popped up on my camera, and the thing about When a big whitetail, now if that had been back in the summer, you know, I would not put pressure on that deer. And it depends what time in October if I'd have caught a glimpse. But when you get a big buck, show up on your trail camera in the first week of November, he's there for one reason. He's walking and running that gauntlet looking for does. And especially if I never even had a picture of this deer all from spring, summer, and, and to early fall. Never had a picture of this deer. Never knew he existed, even the year before but the first week of November, he popped up, and um, I'll never forget that. I saw the camera. I told my wife. I said, hey. I said, he's in there, We and I did have some does. You know, I had quite a few does, and then when I said, remember, hunt the does. You want to be their best friend. You want to stay around them. You don't want to pressure them, but you want to you hunt that concentration of does that you know are passing through in that funnel. But there's no doubt he was there looking for receptive does. I went in. Again, barometric had to be right, the wind had to be right, my approach, and I went in and hunted that deer strictly in the evenings because I had to pass a big alfalfa field and another food source to get into this bottom where I was hunting to to get to this guy. I did not want to put any pressure onto this deer. Never made, you know, more than two days in a row. But the first time that I chose when I had everything right to go with it, went in to hunt that deer, the very first evening, here he came on the side. And actually, it was the same woodlot where I killed this giant. He was on the same run up on the side through this multiflora rose. You know, and I had a slight wind going behind me. Actually, it was a little bit, you know, north was a killer. And the only reason I chose that, because that wind had some west to it. Remember... If you're hunting a big, mature whitetail, a lot of times you got to hunt that wind that is iffy. It's a gamble. I mean, I really, if it's a wrong wind, I know he, I'm not going to be sent it. I don't want to be sent it. But a lot of times if that wind is completely right for you and completely wrong for him, he's not doing it, dude. He's not. He's going to let the younger deer, he's going to let the other deer come through first. And they're probably going to wind you and hes you never knew he was there. Again, the alien that a lot of people never see. That's why. So, this buck he came through, and I was hunting that slight northwest. He was coming more from the northeast or the southwest, and the wind was blowing out of the northwest. And man, he come around, and he got about his twenty-seven yards. He was a slight quarter to me, and I, man, this is awesome. I'm a, I'm a Hercules. I'm gonna put him down, and that's how confident I was too. I, I, when I went in there, like I told you before, when you hunt, you feel that hey, when I go in, I'm killing him tonight. And I'm going to make that shot, that shot. This is a shot I'm going to take, and I'm going to drill it. I'm going to bury it. That is the mindset. I don't think Tom Brady ever, when he went back to pass, whether he can make a pass or one of your great field goal kickers, you know, I hope I can make this. They know they can make that. They've done this before. They've been here before. I know I can do this. Well, here he comes. He's walking through. And all of a sudden, he's, uh, you know, slight quartering to me. He does that pause. And he's not putting that nose. And he's not licking his, uh, you know, lifting the nose. He's not licking it. He just stops. And it's like in his head, you know, a lot of people think that deer have sixth sense. I don't believe in the in the, the weebie-jeebie. And I don't believe in the ghost of things. Or, you know, people like to think that stuff. I believe that this animal, when they get to be five and a half, six and a half, and seven and a half years old, they have encountered so much to preserve their life in danger that when they instinctively, God has given this instinctive uh, skill in them to survive. And and for an animal or a whitetail to make it to that age, he's encountered whether it could be dogs, cars, you know, predators, coyotes, hunters, drives, you know, he's learned to subvert so much of that. And I believe that when they they could be walking and just a scent can run up to that nostril. And I don't believe that that deer has to think about it. I believe that instinctively it hits that mechanism up here. His red flag goes up. He stops, might even not know why he stopped, but he knows instinctively his body's saying, whoa, wait. And I believe because my approach where I went in, I had to parallel that run a little bit as I crossed, I just, there's no other way to come in. And I wasn't 100% sure where he was coming from, but I believe that it was probably a five yard uh, distance from where I had walked around to where he stopped. And it could have been closer than that, but I, I believe that he might've picked because I had a little bit of that scent. He might've picked up a little bit of my boot scent on the ground. That's how smart. I believe that wholeheartedly. A deer doesn't have to be completely over your foot tracks to pick up your scent. I believe that he picked that scent completely off the ground, you know, being five steps away. But he turned and went around the tree... I didn't take that shot as he was quarrying away because whether it's a, a magnificent animal or if it's a doe you want to harvest for meat, we owe it to that animal to make the best and most humane shot. Like Again, when I kill, take a shot at something I'm hunting, I expect I am going to hit it perfect. I'm shooting for perfect. and um, But you got to make the opportunity that you take nothing but perfect shots. It's, this is an animal, a creature, you know, when you think about it, it took six or seven years for this creature, this animal to live and to grow. And they just don't come out of the ground. This is something that, it, you know, it's a beautiful. It's a thing that the, the good Lord created, but it takes time. So it's that respect, that reverence for that, for that animal that, you know, it might have cost me not getting that buck. But in my heart, again today, I would not have taken that shot. I, and I thought he was going to come around the tree. stopped again. But this deer just walked back the way he came. Never put up his tail. Never snorted. I waited. Took two days off. Waited for the barometric hit again. Get up there to that 30.1. I had a good win. Pretty close to what I had. But it might have had a little bit more west to it. Went in again. And usually when you have one up op- you get one opportunity, and a lot of times guys don't get an opportunity, but you you know, usually on a mature whitetail you get one opportunity and if you don't make it work, you're not gonna get another opportunity. You either gotta move, try to find another ambush spot for him. Well, again, um, I think it was two days later, I went into this stand wind right. I knew that I hadn't boogered that deer, and I knew that he didn't know what I was, but he knew there was just, he was smart enough to say, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'm not sure what this is, but I'm not walking in. He would not release himself. Talk about discipline. And, um, I went in again and, and, um, I had a doe and this was a yearling doe. She was maybe a year and a half doe and she come trotting through and she stopped within five, eight steps of my tree. And again, I think she might have uh, smelt or picked up something from the climbing sticks and going up to the tree, but she just that enough that she stopped and w- was like this. Now she wasn't putting the nose, but she just put it there. Now she could have been stopped, and she could have been waiting to see. Again, uh, she could have waited to see how close this buck was that was chasing her, or you know, she put her ears back to see, you know, is he still behind me? But as it wasn't long. I hear. Bah, 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 bah. And I look over to my right, and the stand that we sat, you know, I was sitting in, you know, normally in the in the funnel where the deer crossed through, um, I don't like to get super high in my stands, but because the stand was set up on the side of a hill, it was basically to down, you know, I might have been only 15, 18 feet off the ground, but to the, you know, the run that the deer went through, I could have been 20 feet off the ground. I was a little higher. Well, the problem was to the right, he was up on that hill too and made me about only eight feet above him and when she stopped i looked and there he was there was old hercules 180 plus deer um i think he got later that next year he got he got killed hit by a car scored 184. Um, but he was right there and i'm watching him and he sees her stop ears come up and what's the first first thing he does he starts looking up and he looks up and he He's now I put I make sure there's brush all around me, but he was just, you know, at 10 steps and eight feet up, you know, this big blob. It, it uh he wasn't taking it. Didn't snore again. He just backed up, turned, and trotted. Neither tail never went up, trotted. I'm like, no, 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 no. And he went around the swale, and I could hear him bleh, bleh. And then he called that little toe over to him. I never got a shot at that deer. That was twice. My wife had an opportunity, Um, actually she didn't have an opportunity. She had a nice little non-typical buck that was in front of her. She saw Hercules in that same area, but he was up by my stand walking that side of the hill. She just couldn't get a clear shot. So actually that was three times that buck was seen within probably a two week period and we couldn't finish the deal. But you know what? To this day, I feel that um, pretty good about what I learned and what I did. I just needed that 10% of luck to close the deal. But again, when I say when you can get 10 yards of mature whitetail, uh, tw- within 20 yards of mature whitetail, you've done something. And and 20 yards and not have spooked him out of the county. So anyway, that's my talking on the pre-rut and the rut. The third time the third that we look at, we look at the late season, hunting the late season. Again, we're back to the late season is basically food source again. There is a late season. Rut that like I said the post rut wherever you want to call it. It's a a three-day flurry It's those that didn't get bred. They'll come in estrus again You know what if you use the analogy of hunt the does um, Stay there where the does you want to hunt that food so hunt that doe you got a three-day window you got a good chance of shooting that buck But we're hunting food source again in that late season and the bitter cold to me the better. I love snow um the biggest bucks i've killed my wife is is hers both have been in and uh, i shouldn't say both her first one was you know it was cold bitter cold which helps us the barometric pressure's up there you know the food source you know where they're going to be you just got to have the right equipment the right clothing and um you know and, and be there way ahead of time which that gets a little tougher in the late season than what it does in the early season to tell you know someone hey. Uh, we got to show up at, you know, another two hours earlier we got to go four hours early uh, that's pretty tough when it when it, you know the it might be five eight 10 15 degrees out to put up that that's why it's important in the late season I choose you know older that we get my wife is involved and a lot of you guys if you want to get your kids and your wife involved you know, start looking at some of these elevated blinds um, We uh, we partnered up and working with Sniper Blind, and I've used a lot of blinds in my life, seen a lot of blinds. There's there's you will not find a better made sniper or elevated blind than the sniper blind out of here in Iowa. It's uh, It can hook up, it, it uses t- uh, truck tires with a trailer hitch that hooks up to our ball of our, our truck. We can move this 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 little apartment. I can move it anywhere I want in the field. We back it up into the brush. We can, and, and they camouflage it the way it's painted. But between the window system, the carpet, it's, it's insulated. What a way to go in the late season better opportunity to take a new hunter my wife or someone like that you can send in even for yourself because the deer trust me the deer are used to it the deer we have video after video deer walking in front of the blind they're all around the blind they pay no attention because we sky we, we take away that skyline by backing that blind in to uh to the brush so when deer look at that they only get you know the side look or maybe a front look but they do not see a complete you know, they cannot skyline that blind. A lot of guys that you'll see, you know, how many, and everybody's seen this, driving the roads and you look out in the fields and out in the middle of the field, you see those sky towers out there, guys are hunting. And I mean, you see that from a quarter mile, half a mile down the road. Uh, Trust me, the deer, that skyline, the deer see, and I'll tell you what, my wife killed a, it was a a beautiful mature whitetail, but the first night we saw that buck, we had all the deer come passing through, I forgot to pull the black shade down on the side that he came, so the window was kind of open, but we were using that so we could use it for sight, and that buck all the other bucks came through that run and never saw a thing. And the kid ended up right in front of us, under us, all around us. That doggone buck, when I looked and saw him, I said, oh, babe, there's a big one. And he stood the whole time. He caught either me or her, just move our head on that side window. And he was a good 120, 130 yards in, you know, from us just in the woods. That deer never, ever moved he stood there and that deer passed him and, and stared at us, stared at that blind. And I told her, wow, don't move anymore. He, he doesn't know what we are, but some, again, see, something wasn't right. He wasn't falling for it. Even all these other deer were passing by him. I thought they would still pull him out, and he didn't. We waited two nights, waited for the barometric to hit 30.1. It was on fire. We made sure we had our window closed. and Of course, my wife tipped his toenails, and he's on the wall now, and, and a great story. So when getting to the late season, excuse me, <coughs> when getting to that late season, again, we're hunting the food source. We always want to get there early. Make sure that we're paying attention to that barometric 30.1 and rising. Pay attention to your wind, and um, you got a lot better chance. So that's the three parts I break down for the, for the whitetail season. We're going to do on some more podcasts. I'll get more in because we got so much to talk about. We're going talk about equipment. We're going to talk about guns. We're going to talk about bows. We're going to talk about uh, um, blinds, our scouting, rattling, mock scrapes. There's so much more that goes to this puzzle. But I wanted to get this intro into you guys, get you talking about uh, the three parts of the season, but getting you guys to understand and start thinking about the mature buck being an alien, that he's a different breed, he's a different animal, he's not from this planet, he's not a regular whitetail, and if you start understanding that, you're going to start putting a lot more uh, good bucks, mature whitetails on the ground and on your wall. So I appreciate you guys, and then always remember to hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide. Well, folks, thank you for listening to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show, brought to you by Legendary Gear, a game call company that is legend by design. Be sure to check out all of our game calls at legendarygearusa.com. Legendary Gear has superior waterfowl and turkey calls to keep you tipping toenails. Every waterfowl call is hand-tuned by myself. So hunt smart and stay safe. This is George Lynch signing off until next week on the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show.